Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast to Mr. Josiah Hunt from Pacific Biochar. I'm super grateful for you joining me today and excited to jam. Uh, thank you, Gregory. And good to meet you. Yeah. So uh, right before I hit the live stream, you were just um, noticing the surfboard in the back. So um you know, I, I, I sort of feel like my background is a little bit of it's sort of like a Rorschach test where people zoom in on the items that like, in a way, tell the most about them. So maybe we should just start out with you talking a little bit about surfing. You know, uh, you you live you live near the Pacific Coast, but not right on it. Are you still an avid, avid surfer or is that uh, something that is in the past? Um, it comes in. Uh, gosh, I, I was going to say it before I realized it was a pun, but I'll say it anyways. It comes in waves. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this past few weeks has just been nonstop. I, I was I had gotten enough work done kind of at the end of the year that I I could afford a little bit of time off and we've just had a run of, of epic swells. And um, so for the past two weeks, I've been surfing my brains out. Amazing. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been great. Yeah. It was, it's been a really good few weeks of surf. Amazing. That, I don't get out as much as I um, would like to. And you're in, you said you're in Sebastopol. Are you, um, are you like native Northern California or, or North Central Californian? Has that been your home base forever? I, I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. Okay. Um, um, which any Santa Barbarian will tell you uh, is the southern end of Central California, right? Not yeah. Southern California. Um, and <laughs> uh, and then I spent 15 years out in Hawaii, um, and then I, I just moved over here in in 2000 uh, in, in 2020. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Pacific Biochar. So let's get into Pacific Biochar a little bit. Um, you guys have been pioneering uh, biochar. I mean, I've known of you for a little while. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe we have mutual friends and whatnot. But I'm not entirely sure all the layers of possible connection, but I've definitely had a place in my sort of like geography of people doing cool things and Pacific Biochar has been there. Um, you want to just tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, what you guys are up to, what you're passionate about, like what what the mission is of Pacific Biochar. I know you're a benefit, benefit corp. So trying to do something bigger than just make a buck. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. That's definitely it. We're Pacific Biochar Benefit Corporation. Um, uh, it's a, we're a California Benefit Corporation, which for tax purposes is essentially the same as a C-Corp, but yeah. built into the DNA of our company, um, we have put benefit to humanity on equal to or greater than um, importance than profits to stakeholders. So many corporations, once they grow beyond a certain size, can get stuck in this a difficult position where um, they are kind of not allowed to follow the moral guides that humans would normally follow because they're stuck with this fiduciary responsibility to bring profit to their shareholders. And so they might yeah. have a decision where they have like, all right, we can make $5 million and pollute this river, or we could make, uh, you know, we could make uh, $1 million and, and pollute nothing. And they're like, well, I'd rather just pollute nothing because that river is priceless. And then you know? they get polluted by their shareholders. And, we're, and you're still going to be profitable. But then you have to look at it like, all right, is that pollution illegal? And like, well, technically not. I mean, we know it's wrong, but it's not technically illegal. 
So everyone on the board might be like, well, that's, that's messed up, man. But, you know, they're stuck with this fiduciary responsibility to provide profit to their shareholders. So they would have to choose the $5 million plus polluted river instead of being able to choose the $1 million with no polluted river because they're stuck in this bind. And it's something I think that's kind of, I think it's one of the core problems with, uh, with, with, you know, capitalism as we're uh, experimenting with it right now, or as we're using it right now is because we built into this. We built into the DNA of corporations this this problem that doesn't allow morals to guide decisions. It's not as though no decisions that no morals and decisions ever cross paths, but it, it pulls morals out of some of the most important decisions a company can make. And so by by creating a, a benefit corporation, we have it built into the DNA of our company, into the articles of incorporation. Mm-hmm. Um, that anthropogenic climate change mitigation um, will be, you know, is one of our company goals and sh- and shall be on par or greater than profit. Uh, to shareholders. So sorry, that was pretty long winded, but um, I, I no, feel like super helpful. Yeah, like I feel like it's kind of this mysterious thing, like, oh, what's a benefit corp? You know, it's like, is this, is this some feel goody kind of thing? And um, yeah, that's that's kind of at the the core of, of um, what a benefit corp is. And and I think it helps identify uh-huh. what Pacific Biochar is in that we are kind of a, a mission driven company and our mission is to sequester carbon and leave a legacy of fertile soil. I love it. That's a great uh, mission. We are also, um, we're also a public benefit corp. So um, I resonate with that, um, you know, both the intention and it's an interesting thing to, I oftentimes wonder (laughs) how, you know, if and when as a society, we're going to start to re-approach what it takes to get a corporate charter in different things. Like back in the day, my understanding is that you usually had to, it was significantly more challenging to get a corporate charter, to become a corporation. Um, and there's there's bad sides to that. It's like, I've been, I've we were talking about Ecuador earlier before we pressed record. I've spent a fair amount of time there. It's kind of a pain in the butt to start a business in some countries. <laughs> it's totally, and, and that does, it's kind of claustrophobic. It, it dampens innovation. But on the other hand, you know, to what degree do we want corporations to have some responsibility to, to the public, to the ecosystems that they're inhabiting? Um, do we want it to just be optional that companies feel like it's their responsibility to make that decision between, you know, optimizing financial gain in the short term by externalizing as much as possible and degrading ecological health and pumping chemicals or whatever might be happening. You know, is that a choice? We want to do we want to keep that as like a voluntary action (laughs) as it currently is? I don't know. I think about that a lot. Like to what degree do we actually need to? So this might be like the first hot take of the conversation. From your perspective, are we better off kind of keeping it fast and loose and innovating our way out of these ecological, this ecological crisis and like poly crisis that we're in? Or should we be thinking about kind of governing and regulating our way out of the crisis? Or is it a mix? Is it is that a false dichotomy? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the I think it's I think it's the both. I think it's the both and. Yeah, because I, I, I think if we can't solve if we can't solve and, and I, I want to be super clear, I used the word capitalism earlier. And I've got a kind of a love-hate relationship with it. I, I do think it is a it, it it's a word that I think gets unfairly um, demonized because I don't think what's wrong is capitalism. I think what's wrong is the way that we're using it today. I think at its core, the idea of capitalism is not necessarily wholly wrong. But one of the things that one of the ideas of capitalism is that there's this kind of implication that humans are generally good and and 
therefore the outcomes will be generally good. But like I mentioned earlier with the corporation, you have this problem built into the DNA of, of corporations where you take the human moral compass out of the equation um, when you have to provide profit to shareholders instead of doing the moral good. Um, and that's just one example. And, 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 I, and, I, and I don't want to like hang on that too much. Um, I think there's a lot of other examples. Like one, I think that if honesty were a requirement, we might not be in the same position that we're in because companies do not have to be honest. They can just be completely dishonest, like within right. certain within certain you know parameters. As long as it's legal, there's sort of like a yeah, yes. If there's and, an encouraged or at least tacit understanding that you you only need to meet the require the legal requirements of whatever whatever's happening. But but honest isn't honesty. I mean, not to be that guy, but does honesty do do honesty and truth really exist in the twenty first century? <laughs> like, no, that's a great point. That's a super great point. I feel like some of the guardrails that could help us come down to these like super fundamental things that feel like super wishy-washy. But the more that I've worked in, you know, in the world of, of business and getting shit done, I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm not allowed to say that on this podcast. Getting You're stuff good. Done. You're good. Um, yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> uh, then um, I, I really feel like some of these moral compasses are critical, um, like greed. Like when did, when would, when did we just decide as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a civilization that greed is just actually cool, you know? Like uh, uh, collecting so much money that you could never use it in in a thousand lifetimes, and not even sharing that is actually kind of cool. So greed, I think, is one of those things that it, it. How do you govern that? I don't know, but I feel like getting out of this mess we're in, we we do need, I believe, kindness, honesty, and something to solve for greed. I mean, greed just shouldn't be cool anymore, man. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. But, but I don't want to. I don't want to like make a law that says thou shalt not. It's like I, I feel like that it, it does come down to a certain thing. Um, like almost like signing an NDA. Sometimes if you really need to sign an NDA with somebody, like, should you really even be doing business with them? Like if we have to make laws to, to, to counter greed, maybe there's other things that we should be doing to counter greed. Um, and sorry, I, I feel like I've really gone off the rails here. You're um, good. Yeah, but, great. yeah. In a lot of these things I struggle with, like, I don't really feel that we can regulate ourselves out of this alone. And I do feel that regulation can have, it, it is a powerful part of it. And then I really feel like um, to get out of this mess that we're in, it really comes down to some of these fundamental factors of honesty, honesty, kindness, um, one of the opposites of greed, which is love, um, just like a massive outpouring of love. I, and I know that sounds like so hippy dippy, but like, I, I, um, I honestly believe that a massive outpouring of love is... I don't know how you I don't know how you regulate that or or how you do that, but I, I I feel that in my bones that in order to get where we're going, um, that is one of the key components that's needed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I resonate with that. And I and I don't know, you know, it's probably not something that can be codified. I think on the, you know, on on your point related to like making greed not cool, I guess it I, co I, I commonly think that's probably a cultural thing. It's like, I think, you know, I think that greed, unfettered greed may mostly be an artifact of, I guess, like primate dominance and sort of sexuality. It's like, you know, the thing to do to be an alpha is to like, if you want to be at the pinnacle of all humanity, you just accumulate until you have way more power than anybody. And then you make the rules and you, you get, you know, whatever, you, whatever weird kink you have. <laughs> 
you can just normalize and whatever's going on. And I kind of feel like that's a, the, the only way to deal with that is deeply cultural. Yeah. Is like, who do we give status to? Who is, who are the people that we honor the most? Who are our heroes? Who are the people that, you know, men or women or others find attractive? Who are the people that like people flock after and become like the sex symbols or whatever? Um, Currently, it's like the people who win the unfettered game of, you know, winner takes all. But, you know, but in other cultures, other people are the heroes for different reasons. Right. And I I sort of feel like, you know, so how do you change to me, at least that's I also think there's probably some simple regulations probably like i don't think it's that hard to to shift massive wealth accumulation and like even things out a little bit it'd probably be healthy i i think a lot of us are intrinsically i don't know about you but i'm not driven in my lifetime of entrepreneurship by being the richest human on earth or something like that so it's not as if it got in my way to risk a bunch in crazy entrepreneurial regenerative ventures. And I think that that's, that's, you know, you don't have to give people the optimum upside, I think, to encourage innovation. That's because that's so often the excuse, like the, the naive libertarian excuse is so often, well, but if you have any whatsoever leveling system, then people will just become lazy and they won't want to do things. And I'm kind of like, really? Like, I don't know. Is that, is (laughs) I'm not so sure. Yeah, no, it's, and, 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 and so here we are, like, even just as we're talking, like my, my, like the back of my scalp is like on fire and I'm like, oh my God, like this is overwhelming. Like I, I feel as though part of, part of what we're seeing right now, we're seeing a lot of environmental degradation. We're seeing, you know, this, this climate problem, uh, We've degraded our soils around the world. Yeah. Um, we've polluted our waters. We've, um, you know, depleted our our biodiversity. We, we've done so much damage that it really looks like a, you know, just at, on a global scale, it's a disease. And it, like, and and all of these different things are symptoms, right? The the degradation of our atmosphere, of our biodiversity, of our water, of all these things are are symptoms of some greater disease. Yeah. And that we're, we're not doing shit right. You know, we're we're and, and it's okay. Like we were monkeys not too long, or maybe not monkeys, but like. Like we, we've been smart for a while, but like, I, you know, we, we've been, it, it's kind of understandable, but it's, it's also not a great excuse. So I feel as though the disease and the true cure is in the realm of culture and thought, Yeah. It, but I don't know how to solve that. That's way, that, that, totally. that takes way smarter than me. I don't know how to solve that. I feel as though I know enough to acknowledge that there's something there, but I am, I do not feel capable or even, um, uh, what would be the word, um, deserved of, of, of even really playing much of a role in that. So I, I, I know I can recognize that maybe a lot of the disease might lie in the realm of, of culture and thought. Um, and I'm not trying to say like, hey, we're all you know messed up. It's, it's understandable. Like we don't need to give ourselves too hard time and we all evolve and that's, that's fine. Cultures evolve. But I, I do feel as though cultural evolution and evolution of thought is probably that's really kind of some of the key but i don't know how to do that i have no idea how to do that so what i can work on is i can work on helping mitigate symptoms yeah that's it i feel like that's something i can do so that's what pacific biochar is pacific biochar is my you know it's like my um my ideals and passion to help mitigate and even reverse some of the symptoms that are painful to humanity if i can do that i will and this is one area where i thought i could do that yeah 
Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. And so, yeah, so that's like, and when we talk about like the physical world and like some of these symptoms and how do we, and how are we physically mitigating these, man, that's an area I'm much more comfortable. Well, let's, right? let's dig in there. I mean, yeah. so f- especially for the audience, I think it'd be, it'd be awesome to just get your take on soil, the role of soil as a um, sort of pillar, both of civilization and of larger ecological cycles, and then the role of biochar in healing and regenerating, restoring soil, um, you know, and just kind of your your take on on that, you know, like living soil is living organism and the role of biochar in, in being a kind of key bit of the medicine or, or regenerating our, our soils. It'd be awesome to hear your you know, just like, yeah, your take on all of that. So I studied, um, I studied, I, I studied ecosystems when I was in college. That, that was my key interest. And I, I ended up with a degree in agroecology and environmental quality. So I took a lot of soils and sustainable soils and, and um, ecosystems. And I took a lot of classes of that type. At UH Hilo, is that, is that where you studied? I, right? I, I traveled around. I wasn't planning on getting a degree. So I just traveled around taking classes I thought were interesting until mm-hmm. I finally had enough credits. I was like, well, I should just get a degree. Yeah. I studied at Santa Barbara City College, gorgeous campus, by the way. Um, UH Manoa on Oahu, and then I finished at UH Hilo. Cool. And one of the things that um, that really struck me is that soil fertility is many, many things, but if the but the the one single most critical factor seems to be soil organic matter. I mean, you know, like you, there's so many things that are important. You want all your nutrients in balance and all these different things, but basically the difference between um, dirt and soil is organic matter. The difference between subsoil and topsoil is soil organic matter. That's basically the key to soil fertility is not the only key, but it is one of the most important defining characteristics of fertile soil is um, having sufficient or even abundant soil organic matter. That was one thing that really struck home. Another was that we really don't know that much about it. <laughs> it's like, it's oddly mysterious. It's very difficult to study. And for how critical it is to humanity, we really have a lot of gaps in our knowledge in understanding what it is, how it's formed, how to care for it, and all these different things. I graduated in 2004. And then, two, you know, several years later, I read a National Geographic article that talked about, it brought this word to my attention, biochar. And it talked about charcoal as a part of soil organic matter. And a part of soil organic matter, which is incredibly stable, having the ability to last for millennia in the soil and that we live in a world now where we have organic, you know, we, we have organic residues like rice hull and, and all these things in piles so large, we call it waste. And that we can take these waste organic materials and pyrolyze them, which generates energy, which releases energy and creates biochar in the same process. And then utilize that biochar to have a long-term soil organic matter increase result. And while doing all of this, the net effect is carbon removal because you've taken carbon that was in the atmosphere and sequestered it in the soil for centuries to millennia. And when I read that, I was just like, you know, a string of curse words. I'm like, oh my God, this is like, this is really, really interesting. This appears to be a missing link, not the only missing link, but one of a one critical missing link in our understanding of soil organic matter. So I did a bunch of research, you know, I mean, I, I did some research, I started making some biochar, I did some trials and it all seemed to pan out and like, here I am, you know, like that's all I've done since 2000, 2009, I did a little research grant and that's all I've done since then. So that's kind of, what drew me to biochar is that it appears to be a missing link in our understanding of soil organic matter. And um, and I guess one of the other things is that it was such a nascent industry um, that there was not yet, um, there was just a dearth of knowledge. And so I felt as though I could do something like 
this is something I can, I can do something with this. And so I did. Um, totally. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Back in trying to think, I think um, I helped Albert Bates do some of his research for the biochar solution back in the oh, day. Really? And I'm uh-huh. trying to remember, I'm trying to remember when, uh, when he published that. I think it was, it was around, it was similar time. It's like, I, I think yeah. I, I would have been helping him 2008. I think he probably published it in 2009 or 2000. 10. I'm not, I don't remember the date. I, we'd have to, we'd have to go back and look, but um, similar moment that I came across biochar and was so fired up and so excited and just like had the transformational um, image of the integration of biochar and probably pretty similar image to what it sounds like just given backgrounds you know, sort of like localized agroecological, you know, like biochar units integrated into sort of smallholder farms and landscape care, forestry systems, so that it's kind of, you know, because I think people probably get squeamish about the sort of like massive scale biochar when it integrates into a crazy monoculture system where you're just like growing, you know, some <laughs> crop for infinity acres and then, you know, doing energy and biochar production versus, you know, and this is like all about how it gets built, right? How, what's the business model behind it? What are the agricultural practices behind it? What's the local food system integration? So I'm curious to just, you know, prod a little bit there and get your thoughts at this stage where you're scaling Pacific biochar, where you've sort of built a business around this. How are you thinking about that kind of like, you know, scale versus replication, how to influence food system design and evolution kind of to be relocalized for food sovereignty and, you know, as opposed to industrial scale. Yeah. Just where's your head at in that kind of like nexus of design challenges that we face? Um, Well, one is that um, I guess I I always try to be a little bit humbled by the fact that, you know, biochar has been part of soil organic matter as long as plant life and fire have coexisted, which according to geological record is, you know, 350 million years ago or something like that. So biochar has been part of our ecosystems on most of the planet for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And and so how can I, as a human, amplify a natural phenomenon to achieve beneficial outcomes? And the tools and the eco and the landscape I'm in is a human-built landscape, right? So how do I, as a human within a human landscape, take this naturally occurring process and amplify it or enable it to achieve beneficial outcomes? And when I think about beneficial outcomes, I think it's important with the biochar to acknowledge the multi-generational aspect of it. So does that mean, you know, how does that impact my way of thinking about making biochar by hand in a, you know, with 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 a small pit in the ground or something like that, or or a, a small kiln or making it an industrial scale? Um, I don't really feel as though either one is um, superior or inferior. It's, it's apples and oranges, you know, um, oranges don't make a good pie. Um, they just don't. So, you know, if you want to make a pie, use apples. Um, and so some of the, the approaches should fit within the system well. And I know that's like, it might feel like I'm trying to escape the answer here, but I, I, again, looking at ecosystems, I found that um, simplifying things to sound bites do not fit well with ecosystems. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I guess what I'm getting from you, which I which I respect and I think is probably right, is that, you know, we currently have an industrial ag system 
And that industrial ag system could radically benefit from an appropriately scaled biochar system to sort of improve and safeguard soil health and like plug in at that scale. Um, so great. And and also agroecological that. systems are small, you know, like the, the whatever tiny, I mean, you know, and there's an interesting thing. It's like we in the North American context, we think of like massive big, ag, we think of big ag as the norm, but also all around the world, small ag is the norm um, in many places. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, so it's, it's, it's a little bit of both ends. So, um, so just focusing in a little bit on Pacific bio, are you you're you're primarily am I picking this up right that you're primarily focused on taking waste from the rice like the Central Valley rice industry and biocharring that is that right is that your main feedstock no so um what we're doing is um uh, right now we have three facilities in production one in California and two in Georgia we're about to bring online two more in California all of these facilities are biomass energy plants that are burning forestry residues to generate electricity um and we modify the equipment to intentionally produce charcoal material. So generally these systems were built for combustion of biomass to release as much energy as possible and then utilize that energy um, partly as steam in the, when they're sawmill uh, located. Uh, yeah. or just simply as steam to, to spin a turbine. But generally yeah. they're built to make steam and then the steam either goes directly to like the dry kilns to help with a sawmill or it spins a turbine to generate electricity. And you retrofitted and, that to have like, a, you know, pyrolysis yeah. system integrated into the existing technology so that you're sort of hacking right into an existing flow of waste and processes and then able to get a small percentage of that that over time makes a really big amount of biochar. Yeah, that's right. So we, some pyrolysis in, in these machines that were built for combustion, some pyrolysis does occur um, accidentally on, on their, in their case. And we just created an incentive to optimize, to optimize yeah. pyrolysis. But you, all you have to do is you're, you're not even re-engineering anything. You're just changing, you're just sort of tweaking the burn parameters of existing, existing equipment. Um, operating parameters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we try yeah. and like, yeah, we, we, we can adjust the operating parameters just a bit and, um, and achieve an outcome of of, um, yeah. So it's less heat efficient. It, it's like you're just tuning it. You're tuning it for, you know, a l more mixed output, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to be like with, with the facilities that we're working with right now, the way they're built is that most of them had, um, well, all of them, they had uh, um, the, the paralysis that occurs in these boilers is not a brand new concept. It has occurred um, and yeah. it, it occurs often. So they built these, they built these systems, basically just screens to screen the charcoal out of the ash, right? The, the, the product of full combustion is ash, the product of paralysis is charcoal. So little bits of charcoal fly out through the top of the boiler and they collect those in, in multiple different cleaning systems. Mm -hmm. collect those and they just run it through a screen and they just screen out the larger particles of charcoal and then they send that back to the boiler and burn it as fuel. Right. And so we can, we can uh, change that system and harvest it as charcoal instead of burning it as fuel. And what this causes is it is that they have to add a little bit of additional fuel on the front end to make up for the charcoal that's not being burned. Um, but it's actually really efficient. Uh, the, the, sending the charcoal back isn't always super efficient because you have a mix of two very different materials. So it's, all, it's hard to get the full combustion value out of that charcoal. Um, so 
So we harvest it as biochar instead, and that causes them to slightly increase how much biomass fuel they add on the front end. And that creates basically a stream of pyrolysis, right? Uh, where, where before the products were um, energy and ash, now we have energy, ash, and biochar and a little bit extra fuel on the front end. And so basically you follow that through, you get a little bit of fuel turning into a little bit of biochar in this much larger system. So and, yeah, <laughs> what's happening with the ash? In some cases, the biochar that we're harvesting is, is entirely separated from the ash. And in some cases, the biochar and ash are harvested together to make use of existing equipment. It's expensive mm -hmm. to buy a bunch of augers and, and all these different things and silos yeah. and all that. Thing. And if we're really just getting that carbon in the ground and it, in certain places, if that ash is complementary, then harvest them together. And then yeah. you get a combination of biochar and wood ash. And that material yeah. can then be finalized. And um, in terms of business model, are you guys basically just making agreements with existing plants to tweak their operations and then you guys are getting the biochar out? Or do you need to go in and do the cap? So yeah, you don't need to be the owner operator of these. You're just showing up and being like, hey, here's some, you know, here's some simple changes and we'll off take the biochar and you, you know get a commercial agreement with existing plants um essentially and then 18 months later we've reached an agreement <laughs> you know it's like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. yes but yeah that is it that is exactly it yeah, yeah. I, which is great because the you know that's super clever that's amazing because I, I you know i remember you know back in the day when i was more tuned into um biochar and i saw people thinking about, you know, built big plant build outs and other things and like really geeking out on the, you know, mechanical engineering of how to build a system that's optimized for biochar. Um, you know, it's just always really hard because you need, it should be a co, it should be a co-product. You need to have the heat, you need, you know, the syngas, whatever it is, there's like all these different outputs you can get from from combustion or pyrolysis. So it's just, yeah, it's awesome. It's so smart to just incredibly link incredibly into the existing system. It's good technology. They've been using it for, I mean, this stuff has existed for a long time. There's been a lot of smart people working on optimizing it. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, these machines are incredible. I mean, it's like flying a spaceship, man. These yeah. machines are absolutely incredible. Um, they're, they're, I, I've been just, I, I've been quite humbled in the more I learn about these machines and the people who operate them. Um, they're just quite incredible and, 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 and efficient. And um, so, yeah, rather than building, because I tried, I mean, I was making all of my biochar by hand um, in my backyard in Hawaii for, for five yeah. years. And then I worked with some prototype technologies and um, it, it was just, it was really hard. I mean, I was just trying to focus on getting biochar, like how can we yeah. get large amounts of biochar and make it affordable? And that's when we discovered this, this means of doing it. And, and I know that, you know, there might be some listeners on this podcast, like, why are you working with biomass power plants? Aren't they bad? And why are you burning trees? Shouldn't trees be left standing? And um, so I think it's probably important to address those things. Yeah, well, let's dig in. I mean, and let's, I, I think there's a number of different ways that this can go, uh, this conversation can go. We can, we can dig straight into that, you know, like, so yeah, why, why not? I mean, if your instinct is to go straight for that, kind of address the role of biomass power plants and in our power mix, um, you know, maybe, yeah, let's dig yeah, in. I, can yeah, I, certainly, I certainly have some questions, but go for, go for your perspective first. And then let's, let's uh, do a couple cycles around that. Yeah. So I want to get to uh, where I really want to get to is the, the fun and, um, like the leave a legacy or fertile soil part of the conversation. Yeah. 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 I really want to get there, but I feel like we have to get some of these things out of the way so that our minds and the listeners' minds can actually be fully there with us if we ever get there. 
Um, and so I think it's important to let's, let's get these things out of the way in case people are hung up on them. So one, um, particularly at the facilities in the West, um, uh, we're utilizing high fire hazard um, forest fuels, forest biomass, primarily high fire hazard forests. And so in the in the Western region, um, through poor forest management, we we are now in a position where a lot of the fuel load in our Western forests is excessive. Um, in areas where there might have been 60 trees per acre, um, prior to a lot of the um, forest management efforts of the past century, there are now as many as 200 trees per acre, which in a drought-prone and fire-prone, in actually a chronic fire-type um, ecosystem, 200 trees per acre is an excessive fuel load that is not healthy, is not optimal for that ecosystem. And in in fact, it creates the optimal environment for catastrophic wildfires. Um, and so through forest management efforts and through the residuals created when harvesting trees for lumber, there is an excessive, um, basically there's a glut of forest biomass. We're not cutting down any trees to make biochar, but they're cutting down trees for lumber, they're cutting down trees for forest management, and they, these result in forest residues that we can utilize to make biochar, which often cases have no second home. They have no other alternative. In many of the cases, not all of the cases, but in many cases, uh, a lot of the forest residue will remain in forest and be piled up and just burned in these big piles. Um, yeah. The weather's right, and so we're providing an alternative pathway, which is, I think is a is a is a highly beneficial pathway, which is energy positive and can create this biochar material. Quick question about that: In are, are you returning any of the biochar in situ, or is it all sort of going out? Like it's sort of my guess is it's all going out. It's going I'm out. Just... It's going out to farmland. Yeah. yeah, it's not going back yep. to the forest. It's going to the farmland. But yep. we have looked into getting it in the forest, but one of the things with the forest is nobody's tilling, which is great. Um, and so the biochar would just sit on the surface and in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a chronic fire zone, um, that biochar sitting on the surface would be at risk of being uh, burned up in the, it, it, with even with a low intensity fire. So it's really good to get the biochar into the soil or at least in agricultural land where it can be you know layered on top of and where the fire risk is, is lesser. That's one of the considerations. There has been some biochar utilization in the seedlings and stuff. I see you rocking back and forth. Like, I think I know some ways you could probably get biochar out in the forest and i'm totally open to it but currently- I, i'm just thinking specifically that we've been working on that's it's an interesting point about the reburning um we've been working on um on the with you may know the coolshan carbon trust folks up in their small small outfit up in um, Bellingham, and they've been working on in situ forest stand application biochar pilots and and work um so anyway, um, I I don't have a horse in the race. I'm 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 cool with uh, you know. I think I'm conceptually cool with you know. I think there's a lot of great examples of forests feeding farm nutrition in really great ways. Especially fuel load reduction is is super. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it would be lovely to see cycles back. That's sort of the idealist in me, of course. But um. <laughs> and yeah, I, but we again we live in we live in the world that we live in. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and then with biomass energy, um, you know, I think there are some accurate criticisms of biomass energy, but I would not say that biomass energy across the board is good or bad. I feel yeah. that it depends. It yeah. depends. It, it, it really, really does depend. And I think that that's a nuanced conversation that's hard to have, but I think it's the right one. In that, well, I guess my question there, and I think that's the right stance, and I, I don't mean to be putting you on the spot, but I'm kind of just curious on your take. And I know it's more of a balancing question, right? 
It's like, you've got a business to operate. Um, obviously, you care about the nuances, but you also have to be pragmatic. And you got you have to get a product to market. You know, there there is demand in farmland. There is an established and emerging infrastructure and market for carbon credits. We'll get into that later. Focus on agricultural application of biochar um, in, in different circumstances. There's protocols to follow. There's less acceptance of in situ forest application um, for better or worse. So there, it, you know, I understand there's like a practical checklist of what becomes possible for a business. I'm also curious, just to take a step back, are you, you know, do you identify any levers for addressing that it depends on like the base, like this base infrastructural reality of your business is biomass energy. Um, are you seeing kind of an emerging opportunity for kind of uh, nudging that industry in the right direction so that the answer to it depends is like, oh, yeah, there's an active process that's, you know, really making sure that these biomass power systems are really a positive flywheel for the ecosystem and the economy? Well, I think one of the important things to recognize is that I think a lot of the conversation about biomass energy is focused on the energy production. And I, I think that there's what's what's often missing from the reality of it is that, or I mean, in, in the, what's missing in the conversations that is very true in the reality of it is the waste management aspect. That a lot of times biomass power is one part waste management and one part energy production. And and which and, and sometimes it's the waste management that is really driving the situation, not the power production. And in fact, I think that's probably one of the best metrics. If 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 it's if it's energy production that's driving the entire thing and it's not waste management that's driving it, I think you're gonna get that's when you get into situations that can have negative consequences. That's one of the that's one of the places, particularly when solar panels are so much like solar energy is so much cheaper than biomass energy right now. If it's energy that's driving the whole thing, I, that seems to be one of the precursors to potential problems. Another one is that you know so so generally it's it's when you are in a biomass positive region right where there's excessive biomass and that the biomass energy can be a energy positive waste management solution and I think those are some critical aspects so if you're in a biomass biomass positive region and you can utilize this kind of waste management to achieve energy production that seems to make a lot of sense so I'm just curious you know another kind of question here I mean my understanding and I think this is going to be limited by the equipment that you're using the machinery that's being used. But my understanding, you know, dredging back up, and I didn't reread any stuff on biochar. So this is from, you know, more than 10 years ago of my brain, <laughs> is that in a way you could think of pyrolysis processes, you can kind of optimize between heat, syngas, and biochar. And in any situation, you're going to have a mixture of those. And like the more you cycle the biochar and the syngas in for heat, you know, you get that as your prime output, but you can kind of choose between a couple of those or one to optimize for. Uh, is there a scenario in which the economics of biochar for its ecosystem service, for its um, soil health amendment, for its carbon sequestration, ends in a situation in which these plants are actually getting optimized, not for biochar just as like a, a co-product, but as like the primary product? Yes, a hundred percent. You 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 nailed it. You you. That's exactly what I was I was I was laying the pieces down to get to exactly where you just got to. So one, 
Biomass power is less makes less and less sense if you're not in a biomass positive region, which it serves waste management purposes, right? Because solar is cheap. And so if if now we're looking at um, that with the same basic equipment or with the same basic infrastructure, we have an opportunity to either produce biochar, we, we can optimize for biochar and even biochar production is still, there's still going to be some energy production with it. But yeah. when when we can put a sufficient price on that on that biochar, then you really start changing the dynamic because every ton of biochar that we harvest is a ton of charcoal that could have been burned for energy, right? So producing biochar is not necessarily supporting biomass power. It is in a strange way antagonistic to or almost antithetical to producing biomass power. Because well, totally, it's choosing uh, instead of it's, yes, instead of, it's, instead of using the charcoal you know, that's produced for, you know, a, a strictly human thing, it's giving it back to the system. So there's like a, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. And I can, you know, I live in a, in a region that has lots of forestry. I've been thinking about in stand, you know, I've been thinking in my own way about, so I have, I have, I own a maple syrup operation and, you know, we have small scale forestry processes and other things. I've been trying to bang my head around, Hey, can I shift from heating oil to biomass and could I be getting biochar as an output? You know, what would that cost? Anyway, I, because I've got region network and a million other things, these thoughts move glacially slow towards any kind <laughs> yeah. of innovation. So, yeah. but, but it's like, it's, it's a question that I have around this perennial question of each region is going to have a certain photosynthetic capability and a certain optimal biomass capability. And the the strange thing, I'm kind of setting setting you up, hopefully, here. The, there's a strange thing. I don't remember what this law is called, but in order to achieve optimal photosynthetic efficiency in a system, you need to actually take some of the biomass out of the system in any given point. It's sort of like to have the optimal herd health you know, you need to be actively culling animals. Right. To have optimal forest health, you need to be low grading or removing biomass at a specific rate. The, off the top of my head, what I remember, and I don't think there's been a whole lot of research on this, but what I remember, some research from ecoforestry is somewhere between, it's somewhere around 12% of biomass. Like, needs to get removed every year, basically. And this is thinking like if you wanted a epic old growth forest, but you still wanted photosynthetic optimization, you need to be sort of like, you know, moving that biomass and either putting it back in the soil or it gets burned up in the natural forest cycle or whatever it is it's taking, gets turned into buildings, gets turned into cardboard, whatever is happening with that stuff. Um, is there a percentage of that percentage, right? Let's just imagine a hypothetical world in which we're like, we're technocrats that are tuning the photosynthetic economy of North America. And we're like, what is the optimal amount of that to actually turn into biochar? To sort of like reapply and get back into soil revitalization? Yeah, I, I think I, I'm not sure if I would call it an amount, uh, but I think I would definitely look at which portions. A ratio is what, what I'm yeah, going like which, which Which portions of? And Basically, um, biochar is a great way to utilize organic materials that don't have a clear primary use. Um, Twigs and, uh, yeah, the sort of like the with, stuff, with the, not yeah, lumber. Yeah. You don't want to turn lumber into biochar. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You you don't turn, if there's any lumber quality timber, you know, if, if there's if there's any um, trees down that are lumber quality, make lumber. And then from some of the sawdust and from some of that other stuff, then you can make the biochar. And hey, for really clean sawdust, there are 
are some interesting uses for that as well. So maybe the really clean sawdust goes to um, some sort of, I don't know, household products, you know, it goes to make particle board or something like that. But then the dirty sawdust that's like part bark and part sawdust, and it's like, well, what do we do with this? Not enough nitrogen to compost it or anything like that. That is a great material for utilizing for biochar. And um, I don't, so I don't know what the proportion is, but but back to this like bioenergy and biochar thing real quick. I do think that if, if biochar can be evidenced, conclusively evidenced, and where it's very clear that the biochar has significant value to humanity, both as a carbon removal, a climate change mitigation, and a soil fertility aid, a climate change adaptation, right? If biochar can be conclusively determined to have significant value, I think it starts changing the way we look at biomass energy. Because anytime you're going to be combusting materials and potentially generating energy, you're going to be looking at how much are we going to tune the system for combustion versus pyrolysis? And once that biochar has a price tag on it, a, a you know a, 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 a significant and dependable price tag, you're going to consistently start turning that dial towards pyrolysis. And we're in the beginning stages of trying to prove that out. And that is the number, what is how our company survives. We basically have to go to these biomass power plants and say, we, that that carbon, this biochar carbon is worth more in the ground than it is in your furnace. And I will prove that true every single month of the year. Yeah. And, and so and the it, equation, it's like, you know, it's worth more in the ground than the kilowatt hour than it could produce by rebirth, by burning it. Something of that nature. But it's worth more in the ground than it is in the furnace, like that general equation starts adding up to um, a lot. It can, it can really kind of change a huge amount of biomass that's flowing um, around the world right now. And so I think, how do we make that true? And this is where I'm going to try and steer it towards the fun stuff. Um, how do we make that true? Well, that, that, that carbon has to be worth more in the ground than it is in the furnace. And how do we as humanity determine that? Well, before carbon credits, a, bar, a farmer had to buy it. That was the only, that was the only lever I had to pull. I had amendment. To. Just as a pure, like, pure, soil amendment, I'm doing a soil amendment. Yep. Yeah. And it was, that's tough because biochar is not necessarily, biochar is a long-term game. I mean, if you, if we could measure biochar's value in a 10th of its, of its lifetime, it would be a really big value, but we're talking about like decades to, to centuries almost. Right. But we really, we're kind of stuck within this, this really tight little metric of basically, you know, our company survived until 2020 on selling biochar in, into farmland primarily. And effectively they would have to get a positive return on investment in three to five years maximum in order for that purchase to happen. In fact, not just a return on investment, a really large return on investment. They would have to be convinced, they would have to feel very confident that they would be able to achieve a very large return on their investment within three to five years. That's what we had. That's the, oh, that was the only lever we had to pull until about 2020. Start 2020, that's when the uh, carbon, that's when we could start registering carbon credits. So our company registered at one of the facilities that we work with in Humboldt, the, the first first um, biochar carbon credits in uh, for any facility in North America. And now we can get paid for the carbon that's sequestered in the ground. And that has caused us, that has enabled us to grow rapidly. We've increased our production at that facility by about tenfold. We've taken on two more facilities in Georgia and we've got two more in California. So that began to put a price on that equation of when the carbon is worth more in the ground, right? Now we have something that is a little bit more dependable because the companies who are paying for those carbon removal credits are you know, your, your Fortune 500s. Um, and so that's, that's a big one. For every ton of biochar, it's roughly two and a half tons of carbon dioxide equivalent that we can sequester in the soil for um, 
um, you know, centuries. Generally, the, the the projections right now, depending, you know, our material is, is cooked at a fairly high temperature. So it's estimated that roughly 90% of the carbon in that biochar will remain in the soil uh, beyond 100 years. Um, and so that's how we're getting paid. And the, the big one that I'm really, really excited to talk about, especially on this podcast, because I think you might be able to help me unravel this one, is how can we turn this multi-generational soil fertility benefit into a financial reward that can incentivize us to achieve those outcomes? Because right now, we can get a carbon credit wherever we put the biochar. There could be a soil that is so perfect there, there, that there's no way to improve it. We can add biochar to that soil and it wouldn't, you know, probably wouldn't degrade the soil or anything, but it wouldn't really have much of an impact. Boom, carbon credit. We can use biochar in landfills with landfill stabilization and wet waste management and alternative daily cover and stuff like that. Boom, carbon credit. I want to see biochar utilized in ways that are intentionally maximizing the long-term ecosystem benefit. Yeah. And right now there's no system of financial reward to pay me for that. I want I, I want to co-develop that. I want to see this. Oh, let's do that. That sounds that. awesome. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Like where, what are the, you know, it, pr- probably, um, you know, what are the ecological benefits that we want to track and add and bundle into that carbon unit so that it becomes an instrument for investing in long-term capacity, agricultural capacity, or, um, you know, ecological health or ecological function capacity. Yeah. I mean, off the top of my head, you know, water retention, um, you, you probably want to be measuring water retention, there's probably a delta, you know, it's probably it has something to do with like the net gain in um, a set of metrics, net gain in soil, organic carbon, like in places that are denuded from soil carbon in which this makes a big difference. Um, one would presume that that's a pr- pretty significant shift in soil health. Um, there's, of course, there's soil health. Um, there's some nice soil health quantitative metrics that could be thought of. Um, I, I think you could also be thinking of some, you know, also triangulating that with uh, v- vigor, like plant vigor. Um, so you could be in in places that are already tapped out for optimal soil health and you know, you're not going to see a big change in the vigor of the plants that are growing in the soils that have been amended, amended versus this is a hypothesis. I could be wrong about this, but my guess is if you have a much more denuded, you know, soil type, you'd see a bigger difference in vigor. And that can be measured with NDVI and, and other things. But we measure it, but who pays for it? Well, I think this is where there are, you know, <laughs> there, there's increasingly people who are corporations who are buying into this sort of nature positive framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's net, net zero, which is for carbon, and there's nature positive, which is this idea of um, by 2050, having rebuilt the biodiversity that's been degraded over the last 50 or 100 years. Yeah. Um, so I could see potentially, you know, sort of like hybrid carbon credit. So it's sort of like scratching both itches. So it's like, hey, these carbon credits get you nature positive and net zero, right? And they're therefore they're more valuable. And yeah. because instead of paying for this nature positive thing over here and this carbon credit over here and it's disjointed, we've sort of created a unit that does both of those things for you. I, I think that would be the target market for this type of, off the top of my head, for this type of uh, credit. I also think, you know, increasingly you're going to see uh, natural asset corporations forming to sort of own the means of production of these sorts of, you know, ecological commodities and and natural capital sinks and sources. Um, and so you might have investors who are interested in kind of accumulating these credits, um, as it were. But all of it comes down to like, who's the primary market? And I think it's 
you know, it's companies and lending institutions that are enforcing nature positive and net zero at the same time and want a simple way to achieve both of those. What do you think about the um, what do you about what do you think about the ecological benefits framework as a as a tool to um, document and uh, and and um, transact such a thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 probably the right place to start and to think about it. I think um, I don't see anything that's glaringly better. I think it's got some nice momentum and I think it, it's a good link. It's, you know, it's a good language for talking about something beyond, you know, it's like carbon plus th these other co-benefits or, or even core benefits. I think, yeah. So I think, you know, the bio, I'm specifically honing in on biodiversity, although I also think a different, different group that would probably be interested in buying these I think has to be insurance companies, right? Yeah, I think because with the water, yeah, go the ahead. water, water retention, exactly. Water yeah. retention, flood, flood risk mitigation. You you have these fields that all of a sudden are storing, you know, fifty thousand gallons per acre plus 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 plus. It's just going to massively decrease downstream flooding risk if this is happening. So yeah, and and like when we look at the biochar, at the results with biochar, um, if you ever want to get good results. Like if you're doing a biochar field trial and you want to ensure that you're going to see some significant results, there has to be a challenge. The soil has to be, you know, you're, you either have to have a challenged soil or mm. particularly, a, a, you know, or, or a challenged um, growing season. And and when you challenge, when you have like degraded soil and using biochar to amend degraded soil, that's when you see some of the greatest response, right? That's when, that's how one way you can ensure if you want to see positive response, utilize biochar in a soil that has some sort of deficit. Another yeah. would be the conditions. When the conditions have a deficit when there's too much water or not enough water or too much fertilizer or not enough fertilizer that's when you will see the greatest difference between control and biochar so what that tells you is that it's a buffer against adversity and that's an insurance game that's that's insurance right there and yeah. so i think i think water is one of the most measurable and i think looking future wise like water is it's just, it feels transactable, I guess, more than some of these other things and water. And then also a little bit, some, some sort of like adversity buffer. When um, I saw, I was just, I was just, I was just, um, lurking, you know, I saw that you, you guys worked with carbon future on your, um, crediting. And I saw that one of their clients was Swiss re yeah. um, they, they some of our credits from what I understand. Yeah. So I, I definitely think, you know, I definitely think that working on the, um, I think, you know, I think the way to nail it though, I think it's is sort of like a redefinition of additionality in a way beyond, um, to, to, to extend to something that's more holistic, like more of an ecological benefit version of additionality, like, like, look, you can sort of imagine like, hey, here's a map of the United States. You know, we've used geospatial analysis. We can show you the de degraded and depleted soils. We can show you the water risk. We can show you the nutrification risks. Here's the hot spots, right? And if you, and and the we're doing biochar application there and those credits are worth the bundle of benefits by mitigating that risk, basically. You think about it. And that sort of becomes yeah. like the geolocation sort yeah. of like kicker as it were. That's kind of how we're imagining it too, is we're, we're, we're imagining somehow utilizing that at, um the uh the soil web survey um uh like using the the USDA mappings um uh, I think it's soil web survey um you know using all that that soil health survey soil health survey I think uh is, is, is it is that the one that I think there's there's one through USDA um there's the and, soil food web like Elaine no stuff, uh, and then there's the big database I think I thought that was the soil health anyway um the USDA's big database yes um but you can have you can pull up these maps yeah um you can pull up these maps and 
and look at all the different characteristics of soil. There's particularly there's one through a, a lab at UC um, Davis. That's yep. the one I love. There's this lab, and I think they're using the USDA data, but they they created maybe a, a, an easier interface. But also at the USDA, I think it is the Soil Web Survey. Okay. Um, let me pull it up. Um, yeah, Web Soil Web Soil Survey. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, start Web Soil Survey. Yeah. If you've never used this tool, I highly suggest it. It's super clunky, but actually very powerful. And so um, there's actually in this already, you have to select your area of interest. It's super clunky. You select your area of interest and then you go to, it's still loading. Um, but anyways, then you go to, I think your Soil Data Explorer. And um, and then after you've got an area of interest, you can go to Soil Data Explorer and they're actually in there already. I think this is called like the dynamic soil properties response to biochar. Mm. And so it, it it's, it's looking at the soil properties and then you can basically look, pull up a map in your area of interest and it can tell you where it predicts the greatest outcomes will be. Um, maybe I'm, I'm saying this wrong. Um, it's basically a color-coded map where they're like, yeah, the soils that are red, like they're probably not going to give you that much of a response to biochar. Ooh, these soils that are yellow and green over here, you're probably going to get a really good response to biochar over here. Mm. Um, and so you can start uh, interlocking with these layers. You can use, I mean, there's like 20,000 research articles with biochar, right? Yeah. It's just immense. There's meta-analyses. There's so many meta-analyses that they're doing meta-analyses of the meta-analyses, basically. It, it, you wouldn't actually call it that. It would be like a systematic review of meta-analyses. Um, but uh, there's an immense amount of data on on biochar response in clay soils or sandy soils or loam or you know, all these different characteristics. And so you can have a little bit of a predictive modeling, um, kind of kind of like climate farm that's practice based, where you know you can look at soils and uh, assume an application of biochar and then have some some amount of predictive response that yes we expect. That the 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 dynamic response to this biochar would be I don't know high or low or I don't know if we could ever get to the point of being like quantitative, like you were saying like fifty thousand gallons of water retention added. But I would love to be able to get to that point because we know where our biochar is going and we could we could geolocate where that biochar was applied and 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 the carbon credits generated from that could be delivered with a map showing yeah. what the dynamic soil property response is expected to be yeah. and potentially even get to the point of, att of attaching some sort of metrics to that. And yeah. I don't, I want to be really hesitant about what metrics like we get, but I, I don't want to let the difficulty of, of achieving accuracy in those metrics override the profound impact that can be had. Um, because if you look at the profound impact, especially if you measure it like in a hundred year cycle, more of these long-term cycles, it's quite profound. Um, you know, if it overall across the world, across the, you know, the, the research articles that have been done with biochar, um, the average is a crop yield increase between 10 and 15%. Um, and if you look at a 10 to 15% crop yield increase over a hundred year period, each ton of biochar becomes worth in many cases, you know, depending on the crop value, each ton of biochar is, you know, can easily be up into the thousands of dollars worth of value contributed just in crop yield based on the um, research. And then, so if you were to take that one step further and selectively apply biochar into areas that were depleted, you could expect to see maybe an increased um, average crop yield improvement. And so the outcomes could be quite large. And that's the, that's the thing I'm trying to figure out. Like there, there is something really big here. I think the, the impact of humanity to multiple generations from this one could be profound. 
Yet I don't feel like we've really scratched the surface and how to tap into that and and optimize for that. And it's something I just think about all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's what like you're what you're thinking about it, I would call some sort of like you know sort of multi multi capital or multi commodity um, impact bond, where it's sort of like where you know you're we're sort of saying, look, the the future value of this biochar application includes you know water retention, soil health, crop yield increases, carbon sequestration. Frustration. Um, and you know, here's the here's the time horizons on each of these. Here's the calculated economic utility of each of these amortized across time, and you can get that now. <laughs> you, you're getting that now, and we have sort of a financial instrument. That so, it sounds like it's something like a bond that what you're talking about more than that then includes the However, credit. So you're yeah. like crediting. So you're like giving credit as it emerges and it, as it goes and you're monitoring it and whatever. But you need an instrument for people to buy into now to finance you all to go and like, you know, and the farmers and everybody so that you, capital flows, biochar gets into the soil, essentially. Right. That's all. And, and, and you know what? And we need it. And, and now, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd like to see it happen soon. And I, I agree there. I think there's a lot of different instruments that you could use here and i just want to see some because right now there's nothing right now we sell the biochar to farmers who are willing to pay for it and frankly we're producing so much biochar that we're starting to give it away into to regional areas so we're starting to develop this grant program right because i see that i see the writing on the walls so what we're doing is we're kind of developing when the early stage is developing this grant program where the biochar that we're giving away is deployed through a grant program and the awardees are so can i buy can i buy a forward contract to the rights of any future um like could we just develop a little like off you know future offtake agreement for any like any speculative thing that may or may not happen in the future like i could just be like great josiah i want you know i'm never gonna sign off on something that vague but yeah i mean uh I, i'm not well, but you know what i'm saying like like okay, so if there's an idea like and this is the challenge though would the farmers also sign off because if you want yeah if you want the finance to flow and farmers are, are quite conservative right if you want the finance to flow it's sort of this is my take on it anyway you're you're signing these like long-term land use and sort of like kind of it's a next generation idea of private property rights where the off taker is saying hey i get the following rights like i want to make sure you're not going to do things that burn this carbon up yeah right? I, so that's cool okay I don't know. And then I have the rights to trade it or whatever it is that I want the rights to. I want the rights to claim it. I want the rights to the financialization of it. Um, if I'm the skeptical buyer. About, skeptical about anything that includes rights and futures. I, I, I think. What's a carbon credit? Carbon credit is giving people rights. The buyers have rights. Associated no, a carbon credit is a payment for a service. That's why additionality matters. Carbon credit, you're not paying for the carbon. Carbon credits are not paying for carbon. You're paying for the service of doing something with that carbon or not doing something with that carbon. That's what the carbon credit pays for. And that's why additionality is core to carbon credits. You're not paying for the carbon because carbon's going up and down all the time. You're paying for the service that somebody did something with that carbon that would not have happened otherwise. Yeah, but I have rights associated with that, right? I have the right, I have the right to make the claim around the that's it. Yeah, that's carbon. basically it. Yeah. And I have the right to sue anyone who changes their practices or breaks the agreement of the service contract. So I have these core 
That's what I'm talking about. Those yeah. are like really core rights yeah. that make the value that underpin the value of the credit. One thing that's nice with biochar is that once the biochar is put in the ground, it's done. So we really only have one claim, and that's the claim that they get to claim that that, that carbon was put in the ground on behalf of their purchase. So they get to make the retirement claim, and that's it. Because once that biochar is in the ground, you ain't get it back out. I mean, you could sit there through an acre with tweezers and try to pluck every single little piece of biochar and then dry it out and burn it. But I mean, come on, that's once that biochar is put in the ground, you ain't, you ain't getting it back out. And so yeah. we don't have we, we, we don't have the management issue, um, s- such as with a forest management or with a with a agricultural change of practice. We don't have that management issue that, that the management might change and, and the, the carbon would go back up. Um, so with, with biochar, like I, like I said, we're, we're developing this grant program. And so the applicants would just like with, when you propose a grant, the grant has, you have to show how you meet the objectives of the grant and the objective of the deployment program is what we're calling the max eco band program, right? To maximize ecological benefits. And so the proposal, uh, you know, let's say a nearby farmers, you know, uh, says, Hey, I'm going to use this biochar in this way, that, and the other, and here's, you know, and, and, and we would recognize those as being either, you know, maximizing ecological benefits not maximizing and they would be uh, they would get points based on how they fit against the criteria um just like a grant proposal uh, uh system works and so then we would deploy the biochar um you know we'd have two pathways of biochar the biochar is deployed through this grant system and then some of the biochar is sold to people willing to pay for it um and then by deploying the biochar through this grant system that is administered uh, by pacific biochar um that system is achieving the maximum ecological benefit and then can create this potentially create this um, um, yeah. this climate change adaptation credit or something like that. I don't even know what it is yeah. anymore. And that well, gets it should probably also have the credit. It should have the the mitigation and, and adaptation attributes, I think. Maybe. I don't know. I still struggle. Don't you need to have the mitigation, like to preserve your additionality on the other things? Don't you need to claim additionality on that one? Yes. Yes. So, so don't you need to, so, don't you sort of, aren't you forced to have both of those? Yeah. I don't know if they would be done together or separate because they might i don't know We're, i mean this is why we have to just try it because nobody's really done this before yeah i don't I, i'm not necessarily advocating that you necessarily bundle it i think this could go either way and we play a lot with like are things bundled are they not bundled is this like a meta it's like a bundle a full bundle thing with all the things or or are you creating a system where different people are are buying different benefits yeah. and I, honestly like everybody's got an opinion but it just needs to be market tested i don't i don't yeah exactly and the stakeholders are the ones that really that their opinions matter the most so so you know i can't wait for for one of these stakeholders right now i've floated the idea by them and most of them just like their eyes glaze over and they're like yeah yeah whatever you know show me when you got a product or something like that but i would really like to see what do they want you know do they want it to be bundled do they want it to be separate like how do they want it because ultimately that's going to help drive this and i see there's two kind of ways that i see it one is is that you simply have um like swiss re or you have somebody that's going to willing to pay for this carbon credit plus or they're willing to pay for the carbon credit and you have the same or separate partner willing to pay for a climate change adaptation benefit or credit, right? So either it's just kind of like this altruistic thing, like they're just paying for this thing so that it can happen, or potentially you have, like you were kind of alluding to earlier, you have almost this futures thing where we know that that biochar will provide value. And let's say that every ton of biochar applied in these certain conditions will generate, I don't know, $5,000 worth of value in the next 150 years or something like that. And then the Nature Conservancy is like, hey, this is what we do. Like, we know how to deal with that. You're talking about an ecosystem value over uh, over an extremely extended period of time. That's what we do. So you're going to provide like this by, by applying the biochar, it's going to generate this much value. 
tell you what, we'll give you 10% of that. And you work yeah. with us. I don't know exactly, but if the nature conservancy could just get us 10% of that value right off the bat, then it could pay for the whole thing to go forward. Something like that. And I could see yeah. a much larger, much more, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, evolved player like nature conservancy could probably do a, a, a pretty good job or a much better than us, I believe, at, um, at trying to figure out how something like that works. How do you take something like the, the multi-generational value of biochar, how do you actually turn that into a transactional item? Um, and I'd love to work with a partner like that if uh, if and when they're ready. Um, because to me, I just, it's something I think about all the time with all this biochar that we're making. I'm really excited about the climate change mitigation, but it's the leaving a legacy of fertile soil that to me is, is one of my main drivers. And how do we create a system that incentivizes for that, that financially incentivizes for that in such a way that we can continue doing it and we can optimize for it. And it's translatable to other biochar producers throughout the world as well. So that biochar, because if we're going to be producing, I don't know, millions or even billions of tons of biochar, I just feel like it's such a missed opportunity if the application of that biochar is not intentionally guided towards multi-generational outcomes. And right now we don't have a system to guide for that. It's accidentally achieving a lot of good, but we could achieve even more if we do it intentionally. Intentionally, and I just don't know how to do that yet. But I think about it all the time. And uh, I think that it, I, I have a feeling that that when that program is further developed and begins to be deployed, that the conversations with the regenerative crowd will become a lot more common. I feel like our world will be much more deeply intertwined than they currently are. Yeah. I mean, the things that are popping in my mind have to do with the way in which, yeah, I, well, you know, I threw, I spitballed how I thought, like, I think the Nature Conservancy might think about this, you know, essentially as like a bond. The 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 question is, there's a whole back side of innovation, which is very exciting. And I think it gets to one of the opening parts of the conversation, which is when we were talking about the culture change needed. Mm -hmm. um, there's this whole, uh, how are you on time, by the way? We're just bumping up again. I know, I was looking at that too. I'm, I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm fine. I just checked. I'm fine. Cool. Um, there's this whole culture shift, I think. this, And this is kind of gets to region network thinking a little bit around what value is and what's, what's legible value. And this is what you're asking. It's like, gosh, why isn't it legible value that there's this multi-generational adaptive capability inherent in healthy soil and that there are actions we can take with biochar to regenerate that soil's capacity for multi-generational health that is currently completely illegible yes. to our economic system our economic yeah. system cannot see it it cannot invest in it um and i think there's a number of different pathways to explore right how to make that legible and investable Yes. But in order for it to be durable in the long run, I think we need whatever the solution is that we choose to make the value, the, the fundamental value system that we're using to account for economic value be derived from that type of value. Mm, so, yeah. Right. Most it's very easy to make value legible that is born from extractive and degenerative processes because it's very easy to, to enclose and own and create private property out of those processes. Like if I if I create a, if I kick a bunch of people off property and defend it long enough and strip mine it and then I own all of the minerals out of it, like as long as I can defend it, it's mine. Right. 
right? And I can base, I could, then I could probably get a loan from a bank on the value. And then, you know, this is like the origin of money in a way. Then once that loan happens, the bank gets their fractional reserve lending, and then they loan to a bunch of other people. And all of a sudden we created money out of that basic economic activity, which is value extraction. So, okay, that's where the bulk of our system of exchange, like our monetary system is all derived off of transactions such as that, right? Um, how do we create a system in which the basic units of exchange, the, both store of value units of exchange, like how we mediate value is born instead of from that, from the activities that we deeply need at a civilizational scale to be happening right now, faster and faster and faster, which is restorative, regenerative, which is like restoring soils, right? With biochar. How do you make that the basis? Okay. I think, I think that in order to do that, we need to make it possible to lend, to, to like get loans and to express that value in a way that, that quickly makes it efficiently financial, financializable, right? So that, so that, for instance, the farmer's access to capital radically changes by their decision to participate in the program, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they have access to cheap capital because they're choosing to do it. All of a sudden, because, because we, so that deeply, we just need to be accounting for the, the future value generation and the present value generation of that activity and like bringing it into the present. And I think that is sort of financial engineering or financial wizardry that is that is achievable, but it's hard without something like a Web3 interface, I think. Like you need the digital, because it's all deeply, um, it's all deeply dependent on like in, a scientific process of, you know, okay, this is ephemeral. We're talking about the application of biochar into a field. And we need to be able to have assurance that it happened. And we need to have ongoing monitoring of the health of the ecosystem into the future as the back, as the like, credibility backing. That's the primary challenge. Whereas on the other hand, on the, like the status quo, I don't need anybody's like, you know, third party verification. I've got the minerals or I don't. I either deliver them or I don't deliver them. Yeah. On this side, yeah. we have the whole yeah. coordination yeah. challenge. Yes. We have to create social consensus that the thing happened and that it was valuable. Yes. And that in today's day and age, that requires computers. It requires digital infrastructure. It requires monitoring, ongoing monitoring in real time, basically, just to create the basic conditions of credibility for us all to agree that it's valuable. Right. Yeah, I know. Uphill battle, huh? Well, no, I don't. I, I think we're actually closer than we think because I, you know, I think it all exists. It's like a synthesis problem, right? I, no, you're right. I, I think elements of it exist. I think elements of it exist, and they're nascent. And I also think there are a few people out there that are generous and impatient that can yeah. help in the gap. They can see it. I, there are people who are willing to just say this is this is important and it's valuable and my grandkids need me to be brave right now and so I understand it's not a worked out but I'm going to write you the check anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think there's an inherent problem in that. Like it could be a crutch, a crutch that could disable you actually if you use it too much. Yeah. Right. You're just like, okay, look, we don't need to worry about doing the hard work and figuring out this super complicated thing because we get, we, we found this person that is willing to help support this, even in the absence of this thing that we, we know should eventually be developed. Right. And, and if, if you lean on that too much, you know, uh, it could, it would, um, it could hinder the growth, the evolution of a necessary thing. So yeah, the hard, I, it's I, sort of, yeah, if it's too philanthropic, you don't do the hard work yeah, to actually make it business. I know, but, but right now, Hey, 
need. And we need what we, we need to use what we got. We need to live in the world that we're living in. And I think that that's where we're at. I, I think that we can hopefully walk and chew gum at the same time. So begin developing some of these systems. And I, I really like the ecos, the ecological benefit framework that Douglas put together. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, Douglas Gayton, our, our friend in common there, who, uh, I, I really like that what he put together. And I think now it's kind of upon the world to start using the tool and, and improving upon it and doing something with it. And it's kind of one of those examples, like we don't have nothing. We do have some nascent tools, but we, we need to start using them. Um, and only by using them can we discover how to improve upon them and and and, and what they can do. Well, and, when, when holistic region Pacific biochar credit <laughs> using eco ecological benefit framework? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just like gobbledygook to any of our buyers right now. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, this well, I, thing think we all, I think we have buyers. I think we have buyers. No, who would no and I think, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the thing is we need some of those early, those kind of generous and impatient people, or maybe not impatient, but just generous and, and, and acknowledging of, of the necessity of these things. We need some of them to help fund the pilot, the pioneering efforts. Um, and I think that's kind of, I feel like the stage that we're in right now. So like for this climate change adaptation, this like biochar is a part of regenerative, uh, uh, a regenerative earth kind of thing. I think we need some of those, um, some of those generous um, and acknowledging folks to help help us pioneer this because I can't do it alone. You know, we're, we're pretty, we're, we're pretty busy just as is. And, um, and I, I think that's where we're at right now um, to make that happen. And um, like you, I, I'm really excited to see, I think it does, there are some interesting tools in front of us. Like I think you use the word web three. I still don't really feel like I understand what, even what that means, even though I, I've read about it and stuff. And, um, and I do see a lot of these tools and I, I think measurement, um, I've been particularly excited watching a lot of the development of satellites and then especially combining um, artificial intelligence with satellite information has yeah. proven pretty powerful combination and i think somewhere in like using satellite information improving the quality and quantity of our satellite information and then adding layers of um, artificial intelligence machine learning um, into how we process that satellite information can become a, a really useful tool to tell us about ecosystem fecundity. You know, basically like yeah. the, 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 you know, I, I just love that word fecundity. I rarely do, but then it, I occasionally come back and I'm like, ooh, I can't wait to use that word again. Um, but, you know, like the fecundity of an ecosystem, like the abundance that, that an ecosystem pr can produce in a, in, a, in a unit of time. Um, that I, I believe that we can utilize these systems to more accurately show these kinds of things. And I think biochar can play a significant role in that. I think humanity has been kind of stuck in this thing where like, you know, um, basically humans get involved and the fecundity drops <laughs> and then yeah. um, like the inherent fecundity, you know, like we can apply fertilizers and get a lot of crop yield, but the inherent fecundity of, a, of an ecosystem generally drops when we're involved. And I think we have in the past actually shown that the opposite can be true. And I think we've like re the regenerative movement is kind of an acknowledgement that, hey, we can actually take a depleted ecosystem and replenish some of its fertility, some of its fecundity. And beyond that, it is also not impossible to increase the fecundity of ecosystems through human intervention in biodiversity positive and nature positive ways. And wow, that's cool and all, but like, again, we need to measure, verify and, and, and productize that kind of stuff. So I'm sorry, that was a, that was kind of a ramble there. Uh, I, I kind of lost my, my train of thought a little bit there, um, getting getting too excited looking at some of this stuff. But again, yeah. I think we're at the early stages and it's something I think about all the time. Um, and I know I probably, um, you know, right now I'm just so incredibly thankful 
that we can even get carbon credits for what we're doing. Not that they're not valid, but that the world is ready to actually start putting the money down. And, and that there's a whole ecosystem of, of people working on this to enable the fact that we can do that. Because that is that is literally acknowledgement that the future matters and that future generations matter and that people are willing to put today's money for a better future. Um, yeah. for, at least for a livable future. I mean, um, so just that alone is a great step. And I, I guess it's important to acknowledge that how powerful and important that is. Um, as as a, as a primary step, and then and then basically the parallel of that is like, hey, you know, w- what about all these other things? Because using the carbon credits, as flawed as as they have been, they're evolving quickly and becoming a much more robust system. Using that as a template, it makes all those other steps easier. Because using that carbon credit as a template is basically like, how do we help solve for the the tragedy of the commons, right? And so then, how can we apply some of the lessons we're learning through the, through the carbon credit markets? Um, to to get these biodiversity and these um, payment for ecosystem services and these ecological benefit framework kind of um, systems uh, up and alive and and, and cranking. Um, totally. Again, rambling. Sorry about that. I'm no, it's great. No, it, it's great. It's it's. Uh, I, I'm excited as well. And. Um, yeah, well, it's been awesome to jam. Um, I think we kind of got to, you know, par- part of where I was hoping we'd get to here at the end. And it was fun to kind of meander there towards this shared vision of, you know, how do we solve this specific challenge that's in our way? You know, uh, how do we fund these public goods? How do we fund the commons? How do we steward it? How do we shift humans from sort of being degenerative to being regenerative to being a keystone species, all of these, you know, I think the, these are the these are the main topics. And, you know, I applaud you and the team at Pacific Biochar in, you know, pretty massive and practical, clear sort of intervention to help cycle uh, some of the biomass needed back into our soils and, uh, and also pioneering, you know, linking that up with the voluntary carbon market and, and helping kind of fuel business expansion through that. I think it's a really, it's great. It's really important work. And in the next phase of this is complex and interesting and it's like a narrative shift it's a culture shift we got to make something valuable that currently is invisible visible and so you know it's going to be fun i think it's going to be fun it also might be hard <laughs> but the best things are so i'm excited to to keep working on it thank you so much for all your time uh, this is fun this is a fun yeah. conversation yeah it's been great i super appreciate it well have a fantastic day and uh i look forward to talking to you again soon